Hello and welcome to the Art of Will Building podcast, episode number seven. Today's topic is how to create monsters. This includes talking about how they differ from animals and species, how to make their origins interesting, their motivation, and more. This material and more is discussed in chapter five of Creating Life, volume one in the Art of Will Building book series. Do you want practical advice on how to build better worlds faster and have more fun doing it? The Art of Will Building book series, website, blog, and podcast will make your worlds beat the competition. This is your host, Randy Ellison, and I have 30 years of world building advice, tips, and tricks to share. Follow along now at artofworldbuilding.com. We all know what a monster is, but we might also be creating a species or animals, so let's try to be clear about the differences. The term implies something harmful, unnatural, or morally objectionable, whether that's a physical deformity or a psychological one. Storytellers have created monsters to get across one of those ideas, usually as a warning. In other words, traditionally, monsters weren't there simply to be killed by our heroes, although this is often something we see in science fiction and fantasy. The storytellers of old usually approached it that way, but in our modern times, it seems like people often create monsters just to have something for our hero to kill. While there's nothing wrong with that, it almost suggests that there are two kinds of monsters— those that have nothing interesting about them other than the fact that they're scary, and then those that are representative of some evil. It's arguably harder to create the latter, which is probably why a lot of modern storytellers don't bother. While there's nothing wrong with this, be aware that you could do more with your monster if you have a mind to create something that is morally objectionable. We can do that by having the monster represent something. And it should be an issue that has something to do with either the story that we're telling or the characters. For example, maybe your monster is a fallen knight who has been transformed into something hideous, and that the reason this has happened to him is that he somehow failed in his moral duty as a knight, and this is the punishment. By punishment, I don't necessarily mean that someone forced this person to become this way, but maybe their morally bankrupt choices led them to do something, uh, maybe it exposed them to something dangerous, and that phenomenon turned them into a monster. In this way, we can imply that their character and their faults led to them to become a monster. And if we're not looking for that sort of commentary, then we don't need to do this. Another angle we might want to explore is that sometimes a monster is thought to foreshadow some sort of evil thing happening, and this can be one reason why they are cast out of society, because as long as they are around, people are worried about this event taking place. An example of this would be someone who is born with a birth defect that makes them look physically hideous to other people, and that causes people to not only decide that they are a monster physically, but that maybe morally they represent something terrible. The arrival of a person with this moral flaw could herald the end of civilization, for example. You know, that's kind of extreme, but it could be also just the fall of some idea, or some idea has been tarnished by the arrival of this morally objectionable person. Something we're alluding to here is the unfortunate reality that at least people, you know, humans, tend to judge other people based on physical characteristics, and we will decide that someone attractive is good and someone unattractive is bad. Psychologists have actually done studies proving that people do indeed associate uh, the appearance with uh, good character. This is an unfortunate reality that we all have to live with. However, we could have species of our invention, or even the standard ones, that don't act like this. They might be the ones who take in a monster or a person who's considered a monster who has been cast out by another society. They may even become known for being a refuge for monsters. What if you have a character who at the end of a book becomes a monster for the second book and then goes to those people for refuge? It's an interesting story arc. 
We might also have a species or a race or even an animal that is initially considered to be a monster by space traveling characters who are unfamiliar with this life form. We'll touch upon this more in a few minutes, but the question of numbers is one of the ones we should consider because typically a monster is considered to be a one off. There's only one of them, not 20 or 1,000 of that particular type. So we could have a scenario where the space travelers encounter just one of them and think, oh, it's a monster, and then in time they find out, no, it's not, it's actually an animal or a species. This brings up another subject, and that is the word sentient. The definition of this word is the ability to sense, feel, and experience, which means that any animal is technically sentient, but in science fiction and fantasy, the word is often used to imply that someone or something either does or does not have human-like mental capabilities. This isn't really what the word means, but since you're probably familiar with that, if you've heard of it at all, we're going to go ahead with that understanding of what the word sentient means throughout the rest of this episode if it comes up. Let's talk about the difference between a monster and a species. The main difference is arguably the mind. We don't expect a monster to have a philosophy or a culture or a society. In fact, you know, there's usually only one of them. And we tend to think of these issues as things that distinguish humans from animals. Monsters are often considered to be much closer to animals than to humans. And I say humans here, but in the context of fantasy and science fiction, that includes any of the so-called sentient races, like, you know, elves and dwarves. A monster isn't going to have its own language either, because, of course, if there's only one of them, then it doesn't have a need to develop a language at all, not to mention one to communicate with others of its kind when those don't exist. If it can speak at all, it's going to be one of the languages of another species. The lack of others is also why it's not going to have a society or a culture, because of course that implies there's more than one. While the mind of a monster is typically considered quite limited compared to those of humans, there's no reason we can't have an intelligent monster. And in fact, Dracula is one that comes to mind. But the thing about Dracula is that he was once a human. This is where his intelligence originates, and it has not been dramatically reduced by having become what we consider to be a monster. Whatever transformation he underwent did not cause that problem. But that's not to say that we can't have that be the case. Zombies come to mind as something that is typically very stupid, and then when we have one that is slightly more intelligent, we consider that an aberration. Monsters are typically unsophisticated and are much more like an animal that is essentially backed into a corner and wants to eat us for dinner or just because we came into their territory. We don't imagine that they are sitting around writing symphonies or great literature. In theory, they wouldn't be able to appreciate these either, but anyone can enjoy music. And then, of course, you have the example of Frankenstein's monster, which actually became educated enough to read a book. And if you ever read Frankenstein, Mary Shelley has all these passages in there where the the monster is thinking a lot about its place in the world and what is it doing here, how did it get abandoned by its creator. And so it's a relatively sophisticated monster in the sense that it can actually read and understand philosophy. But most of us don't know that because Hollywood tends to take Frankenstein, uh, his monster, and return, uh, turn it into just uh, something that's walking around moaning and groaning and trying to kill people, of course, maybe ripping their arms off. This is, again, the exception rather than the rule. And while we are generalizing here, we're trying to get a baseline understanding of what we mean by monster. While we might all know what that means, sometimes thinking about these things can make us think of exceptions that we can do for variety. Let's also talk about monsters versus animals and what the differences are. I mentioned this earlier, but I think the single biggest difference is numbers. There's a reason that there's only one type of each monster, and that is because that this implies that they are abnormal, which means that they are not common. Once we have dozens or hundreds or thousands of them, then they become common and they are not abnormal, and therefore they are not a monster anymore. 
This immediately reminds me of zombies, and they are considered monsters, but that's not really the word that we use to describe them most of the time. We refer to them as zombies. Maybe this is a technicality, but once we have more than one of them, we don't use the word monster to describe them. We instead have a name for the whole group of them, such as zombies. Zombies are certainly monstrous, but we don't use the word monster to refer to them. Think of it this way. If you and I were standing together, and a dozen zombies were coming toward us, and I said, Oh look, it's a bunch of monsters. You would say, No, it's not. They're zombies. In other words, zombie is more specific than monster. And one of the things implied by that specific word zombie is that zombies have predictable character traits. How do we know that they're predictable? Because there's more than one of them. By contrast, a monster is unique and therefore we don't know what it can do unless we have some sort of experience or we've heard about that, and therefore we use the generic word monster to describe it. You could almost say that monster is a fallback term if we don't know what else to refer to it by. Assuming for the sake of argument that zombies are real, the first person who would have run across just one of them would have probably thought it was a monster, but once they discovered that there were more of them and that they had shared traits, they probably would have come up with a name, and that name would be zombie. None of this means that we can't have two identical monsters. Now that might contradict everything I just said, but what if one event created more than one of them? Let's say you have a human that was exposed to radiation, or in this case, two humans. Now would that radiation cause the same mutation in both of them? There's no way to know. I'm not a geneticist, so I can't really do more than speculate, but it's certainly reasonable to conclude that it might cause two different mutations, resulting in two different beings. The result is two different monsters. But let's say there are two that are identical, and let's also say that they can reproduce. Once they start doing so, they start to move from the direction of monster into the direction of animals. Either that, or if they all have a certain amount of intelligence, then they're going to start moving in the direction of humans. Why? Well, because they're going to start developing their own language and society and philosophy and all that other stuff. What this means is that we could have something that starts off as being basically a monster, but then eventually evolves into something greater than that. As world builders, we have license to do whatever we want, but at least this thought exercise gets you thinking about what you're doing. Let's take a quick break here and talk about where you can get more useful world building resources. Artofworldbuilding.com has most of what you need. This includes links to more podcasts like this one. You can also find more information on all three volumes of the Art of World Building series. Much of the content of those books is available on the website for free. And the thing that you might find the most useful is that by signing up for the newsletter, you can download the free templates that are included with each volume of the Art of World Building series, whether you have bought the books or not. All you need to do is join the newsletter. You can do this by going to artofworldbuilding.com newsletter. Sign up today and you will get your free templates and you will never miss an update about what is happening in the great world of world building. We've touched on their origins a little bit, but let's focus on this more. We don't need to tell the audience where the monster originated, but the thought exercise can make them more interesting. The first question is whether they exist on purpose or by accident. Let's talk about accidental monsters first. In science fiction and fantasy, it's really easy to have our character come in contact with an advanced technology, an unexplained phenomenon, or even magic that turns someone into a monster. Many of our comic book characters come from such things. We don't even need to explain this sort of thing because people already accept it. We just say that someone ran into this and now they're a monster and that's all there is to it. 
One thing we should consider is whether that phenomenon or whatever caused it is still around and is capable of producing more monsters, whether those are the same or different. If the phenomenon was short-lived, such as something like an explosion, then we are, we're not going to have a recurrence of this, most likely. On the other hand, if the phenomenon is one that is perpetually located where it is, then it could produce more of them, unless we decide that it's in a really remote place, or that people realize it can do this and now there is some sort of protection around it, so that people can't get there. If this source is perpetual, but we don't want to have hundreds of these uh, monsters, then this is one way of going around that. It also gives us the option to change our minds later and have another person become this sort of monster or a different variety. Typically, if we have an accident that results in a monster, that accident happened to a living entity, either a person or an animal. If an accident affected something inanimate, like a broom, we don't consider the result to be a monster. In, in this case, I'm thinking of the Sorcerer's Apprentice, where the broom is doing its own thing. Do we think of that as a monster? No, we think of it as an animated object. But there's no reason we couldn't give it more features to make it more like a monster. And what would that feature be? Well, it depends, but basically we're talking about sentience again, the ability to think, feel, and experience. For the most part, an animated object like a broom doesn't have that. I say for the most part because we could decide that it does, but then we've created a monster, and we're using sentience to distinguish between uh, an animate object or a monster. What about plants? These are living matter. Could we have a plant that becomes a monster? Sure, why not? The accident could have given the plant increased sentience. The big problem with having a plant that is a monster is that plants are typically rooted to the spot, and something that can't chase after you is not particularly disturbing. All you have to do is stand far enough away. But what if we gave that plant the ability to lure people closer, such as hypnotizing them or emitting some sort of pheromone that makes them come closer? Now it's starting to become a monster. The plant might also acquire the ability to cause hallucinations so that people don't realize its true nature. Maybe it causes someone to enter into a dreamlike state where they imagine that they are walking into their home and lying down to sleep in their bed when they're really lying down in the part of the plant that consumes living matter, like them. But let's say that it was a human that became a monster, or one of our other species. If this person is now a monster and they've been in that state for decades, being in that state might have rendered their original intelligence relatively muted so that they are now a little bit dumber than they used to be. This is one way to justify the monster's intelligence. Or we could simply decide that uh, this dumbing down of them was instantaneous. Or they could be so horrified by what has happened to them, you know, psychologically, that they've had the equivalent of a mental breakdown and they're just not uh, in their right head about it. Would you blame them? I would probably lose my mind if I became a monster. If something like an explosion caused our monster to exist, we might want to consider who caused that incident to happen. Why would we care about this? Well, for one, it gives us a little bit more backstory and an incident in our history, but it also might give our monster someone that it might want to take revenge upon if it can remember. In a perfect world, the monster might decide to be forgiving, but where's the fun in that? Isn't it more interesting if the monster has an issue with someone and wants to go and find that person and either destroy them or their family, or even the society, that it used to be part of and is now cast out of? Because it might not just be an individual who was responsible for the accident, but it could be society or parts of that society. And our monster could actually be the one who caused that accident themselves. Humans in particular have a tendency to not take responsibilities for things that we do to ourselves, uh, especially if it's really bad, so it might just blame other people for this and still have a revenge issue. 
For those of you who support crowdfunding, I am on the Patreon site and would appreciate any support you can lend. Think about whether you're benefiting from this podcast or the art of will building blog and website, and consider supporting the effort to spread the word far and wide. Your support could help a budding world builder create an awesome world that you become a huge fan of. This podcast and related items are my way of giving back to the fantasy, sci-fi, movie, and gaming industries that I love so much. You can give back too by helping to fund the effort. When the next Tolkien or George R.R. Martin shows up, you can tell yourself, I helped them do that. Your support can be just $1 a month to the cause. Higher levels of support get you increasingly cool things, such as PDF transcripts of this podcast, free MP3s, including unreleased music, free ebooks and short stories, bookmarks, and even signed copies of books and CDs of my music. Many of these are unavailable to the public. Just go to artofworldbuilding.com slash patron. You can also just go to the homepage and click the big icon for this. Please note that patron is spelled a little bit weird. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Support great world building today. Let's talk about monsters that were created on purpose. Now, by on purpose, I don't mean an example like Dr. Frankenstein, who was trying to create life and inadvertently created a monster. That is still an accident, although not in the sense of something exploding, for example. What we're really talking about is someone who wants to create a monster and has that intention from the outset. A good question is why would someone do this? And the answer could be that it has a purpose. Maybe this monster is designed to guard something. Since there's only one of them, because monsters are by definition uncommon, then maybe no one knows what to expect or how to defeat this monster. Maybe the monster is designed to go around terrorizing a village because some sort of wizard wants this to be done. Maybe that wizard has a beef with that village and wants to, you know, freak everybody out. The monster could also be just a diversion while the wizard is going off and doing something else. But what about the monster? Does it like having this purpose? Does it enjoy doing what it's doing? And is it bound to its creator somehow, so that if something happens to that creator, the monster also suffers a a bad fate? What if the creator dies and the monster is now on its own and is just going about trying to find its way? It might have once had a purpose, but now it doesn't, other than to possibly survive. Maybe the monster is so loyal that it wants to take revenge on those who destroyed its master. The monster could have been harsh because of the way its master treated it, and now that the master is gone, it might be a little bit more subdued or calmer and less of a monster to people. Of course, if it already went around terrorizing people, no one's going to care that it's calmer now, so there's that. If the monster had a purpose, that purpose could have been achieved a long time ago, leaving it aimless. Such a monster is likely to be a little bit more dramatic than one that is still caught up in whatever purpose it has. Any monster that's been created on purpose is arguably more likely to be content with being a monster than someone who was turned into one. While humans and other species have a moral and ethical code, a monster is typically portrayed as not having one, or as having one that is just radically different from ours so that it appears like it doesn't have one. What I'm getting at here is that it's possible for the creator to have imbued that monster with certain attitudes, such as protection of the creator or of an item. Keeping this in mind while inventing such a monster will help you determine how it acts. It can help if you know who created it and why. On that note, who would create a monster on purpose? We're probably thinking of wizards, gods, and maybe a mad scientist like Dr. Frankenstein or Dr. Jekyll. We might also have our our villain character who wants to purposely expose the hero character to some sort of phenomenon, either to kill them or to just 
you know, destroy them in some other way, but the side effect is it actually turns them into a monster. This villain may or may not know what is about to happen to that character, so this could be either an accidental or purposeful creation of a monster. The difference doesn't matter much. The other source of monsters is evolution, such as in the X-Men series. The X-Men think of themselves as mutants, but some of the humans in those stories consider them monsters, and this sets up a nice clash. So let's talk about how to subscribe to this podcast. A podcast is a free, downloadable audio show that enables you to learn while you're on the go. To subscribe to my podcast for free, you'll need an app to listen to the show from. For iPhone, iPad, and iPad listeners, grab your phone or device and go to the iTunes store and search for The Art of World Building. This will help you to download the free podcast app, which is produced by Apple, and then subscribe to the show from within that app. Every time I produce a new episode, you'll get it downloaded right onto your iDevice. For Android listeners, you can download the Stitcher Radio app, which is free, and search for The Art of World Building. This only needs to be done once, and at that point, you will never miss an episode. Let's talk a little bit about Habitat, as where the monster lives is important to any story involving it, even if that home is never shown. The biggest reason we will show the home is that our characters have stumbled upon it or purposely sought out its lair in order to destroy it. And once we do show this home, this gives us a lot of opportunities to characterize the monster itself through the home. There could be any number of things that are lying around in this lair, including treasure, weapons, and the remains of victims. Those victims could either be animals or the other species. In both cases, but especially in the case of species, the monster could have been defending itself. Or it could have either lured those people there or gone out, kidnapped them, brought them back, and then consumed them to some degree. As for why the remains are still there, it's possible that the monster is warning anyone else who stumbles upon this lair or purposely goes seeking it out that this is what's going to happen to them if they come in. It's also quite possible that the monster doesn't understand that disease can spread from these, or the monster is actually immune to any such diseases. Another issue is the stench that could result from this, and once again, the monster might not care, but that stench could actually lure other other creatures in there or the species, realizing, hey, there's something dead over that way, let's go check it out. And then, of course, they end up finding the lair. So the monster may or may not want to avoid this. Of course, it's possible that our monster doesn't have a lair. This is a little bit uncommon because in literature, the stories are typically cautionary, meaning that the monster is living somewhere near a settlement that is supposed to learn a lesson from the monster's existence. A monster that goes away for a long period of time might prevent the population from learning that lesson. On the other hand, there's no reason we can't have a monster that does like to travel. Maybe it does so seasonally, having more than one lair that it arrives at at different times of the year. This makes me think of migrating animals, but animals do this mostly for mating reasons. However, they also do it for food reasons, if their food tends to move around. But in the case of a monster, the monster is typically dining on people. That's one of the reasons it's a monster. So if the population stays put, the monster probably stays put. But what if you have a migratory species? You may end up with a monster that also travels, whether it goes before they do or after they do. In worlds with magic or technology, there's no reason we can't have a monster who has acquired some other ability to get around. One of their victims might have had a magic ring that allows them to teleport, or there might happen to be a magic portal somewhere near their lair, or they can at least get to it with relative ease. And maybe no one even knows that this is there, but that's how this monster is getting around. As you might imagine, this could make that monster significantly harder to track. 
in some worlds, there's a kind of alternate reality that exists parallel to you know the, the normal one and where travel can happen at faster speeds. And maybe that land is where that monster exists, or that monster just has some access to that land and can get from one place to another in much faster time frames. I used that idea myself in my book, The Everfiend, which you can download for free when you're joining the newsletter for The Art of Will Building. Just check on the box for the fantasy fiction newsletter in addition to The Art of Will Building one. Is The Everfiend a monster? Well, you're going to have to read the book to find out if there's more than one of them. In science fiction, we have another option for getting our monster from one place to another relatively quickly, and that would be technology. Now, magic and fantasy and technology and science fiction are pretty much the same thing. It's just that one of them has an explanation in a technical way and the other one doesn't. But the more interesting option here is the ability to use something like a spaceship. We don't normally think of a monster as having the mental capabilities to utilize a spaceship, but there's no reason it can't be. In fact, the ship could be something that is relatively easy to control, and it might even have something like autopilot settings. You just need to give your monster enough capability to command this ship, and then you're good to go. And this is a little bit easier if your monster has some ability to speak, or it has a telepathic ability, and there is a ship's artificial intelligence that can then do all the dirty work for the monster. This ship could essentially function as a home away from home. How does a monster acquire such a ship? Well, that's easy. The ship landed, and uh, the, the monster killed the crew, and then it went on the ship, and away it goes. Let's talk a little bit more about a lair that is in a fixed location because there's another point we want to bring up here. And that point is that usually monsters don't want anyone to find that lair. So the question remains, what do they do to obscure people from finding that lair? Does it go out of its way to avoid leaving tracks? Does it avoid leaving bodies? Does it purposely leave a trail, but that trail is a trap? There might be magical or technological devices that allow people to track the monster more easily. So does the monster have the ability to thwart those devices? If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and review the show at artofwillbuilding.com slash review. Reviews really are critical to encouraging more people to listen to a show they haven't heard of before. And it can also help the show rank better, allowing more people to discover it. Again, that URL is artofwillbuilding.com slash review. The last thing we're going to talk about today is the monster's motivation. What does it want? Being left alone is a viable option. After all, if everyone thinks you're a monster, you probably don't want to be around them. In our modern world, with so much concern about bullying, we could see that this monster simply doesn't want to be on the receiving end of this. In fact, you could say that this is emotionally abusive. It seems kind of silly to say that about a monster because we consider them evil and they're going around attacking people. But certainly in modern children's stories, we have these stories where a, mod a monster is just considered to be a misunderstood uh, creature of some kind, you know, and it's actually a nice guy, but it's being bullied and therefore it's lashing out. You know, this is a bit of a cliche, but the, the idea still stands. Maybe the monster just wants to be left alone and not have to deal with this. This is arguably more likely if that monster was once a species of ours and has been turned into a monster and remembers enough of its old life that it doesn't want to experience this. On that note, some of our species might think the monster has the right to be left alone, provided it's not going around killing people. In our modern times, we have a lot of this right-to-life kind of thing going on, so are there people or species who think that your monster has a right to live? 
Another motivation is hoarding treasure, but this is one that I've always had a problem with for one simple reason. If you're a monster and you are shunned by society, then treasure isn't going to do you any good. It's not like you can just waltz into town and say, hey, you know what, I want to buy that uh, treasure chest over there for 50 gold pieces, and the guys can say, well, you know, I'll sell it to you for 60. You know, it's not going to happen. You're not going to have any bartering. So, you know, this is money. We, a monster doesn't have any use for this. Now, the only alternative to that is to say, well, it's shiny, it's pretty, the monster's kind of dumb. It just likes this shiny, pretty stuff. In which case, okay, sure, hoarding treasure makes sense. A better justification for treasure being around a lair is that uh, anyone who went to try to kill this monster has ended up dead, and their possessions are now just lying around, casually discarded, and the monster doesn't care or know what to do with it, and so it's just still just sitting there. That makes a lot more sense. If the monster was never part of society, it's probably not even going to understand the value of these things. Unless, of course, it's a good observer and it sees people coming into the lair and trying to walk off with something especially shiny. And, you know, it might reason reasonably conclude, oh, that must be valuable, but is it even going to care that it is? Another justification for that treasure is, of course, it does uh, attract people, and if the monster wants to eat those people, well, then it makes sense to leave that treasure around. What about food, since we were just talking about that? Everyone needs to eat, and your monster is likely no exception. The bigger the monster, the more it's going to need to eat, and the more frightening our monster is, the more likely we're going to have it wanting to eat the species instead of just the local cow population. Granted, it's not like people are not going to be upset about the livestock being eaten because there's only so many of them and it's someone's livelihood, but it's much more horrifying and upsetting when the people are being eaten. So we really might want to consider this as a motivation, that the monster is eating people just because it's hungry. Now, if the monster is a little bit smarter and more uh, psychologically aggressive, maybe it's eating people just to freak people out. The problem with doing that is that, of course, people are going to get upset and they're probably going to come after me and try to kill me. So do I really want to do that? Maybe if I eat people once in a while, people will leave me alone. But if I eat people all the time, they're probably going to come after me. If I eat people and I don't make it obvious that I'm the one who did it, then they're going to be less likely to pin it on me and come after me. This is one reason why I might kidnap someone and take them back to my lair to consume them there. Um, it also might be smart for me to not leave the remains inside like the opening to my cave, for example. Monsters may not be sophisticated enough to understand the difference between eating an animal and eating a person, so this is another option. Another motivation that we just touched upon is security. No one likes to feel threatened, and that includes monsters. This could be one of the reasons why they attack. Uh, this is especially true if it feels that people are encroaching on its territory. Maybe it's been living out in the wilderness for 50 years, but then modern civilization is starting to chop down trees and other things and slowly encroach, and next thing you know, it starts attacking people. We might not think that a monster would be afraid of anything, but even the apex predators in the world, like a shark, they are afraid of something. You know, they cautiously approach food, and if that food is acting, or potential food is acting in such a way as to be unpredictable or, you know, not a sure kill, well then something like a shark will actually go away. In stories, we typically show monsters being largely unafraid of people. And these are people who are you know, fully armored or they've got incredible weapons and prowess and they're, you know, they're going at it with this monster, but still the monster is coming on. So this is one way in which a monster is different from an animal. A monster is typically more aggressive and ferocious. It doesn't back down as easily. Another motivation we talked about earlier is revenge. I'm not going to touch upon it again here, though it is covered a little bit more in the book. 
And another subject we're not going to touch about in the podcast is the characteristics of our monster, such as its physical appearance and its skills, and how to make these more interesting and relevant for our audience. And as always, the chapter concludes with a section on where to start. Today we're closing out with Surreal from my album, Now Weaponized. You can hear more at randyellifson.com. Check out artofworldbuilding.com for free templates, and please rate and review the show on iTunes. Thanks for listening.